Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, the former governor of the Bank of England casts a hopeful gaze over a post-pandemic economy. It's pretty positive if you look at any economy that has reopened or is reopening, virtually without exception, the economy has performed at least as well, if not better, than expected. Plus, in celebration of the Tokyo Olympics, some of Monaco's international staff look back on their favorite Olympic moments from their home nation. For every 100 people that just watched a 100-meter sprint final, there is one person like me who will sit through the entire thing back-to-back. Or rather, like the me of 2004, a bored teenager stuck at home with a pesky illness during a sticky, hot Italian summer, positioned in front of the TV for the best part of the day. All that and much, much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We begin today's show with the tricky question of just how the global economy will get back on its feet after a somewhat trying year. To help get to the bottom of this, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, was joined by economist and former Bank of England governor, Mark Carney. From the challenge of maintaining equal growth across borders to how to move the sustainability agenda beyond rhetoric, they start here by chatting about the macro view of where we are right now and what's on the horizon. It's pretty positive, to be honest. Uh, If you look at any economy that has reopened or is reopening, virtually without exception, the economy has performed better, at least as well, if not better than expected. I mean, let's take the US. The US uh, economy is very, very strong right now. We're going to have another strong quarter. Consumption is probably growing 14% or so on an annualized basis. The savings rate is still twice historic averages. So there's still a lot of pent up savings. Fiscal policy, the uh, monetary policy still providing stimulus going in. Companies are starting to spend again. In fact, the biggest challenge that the US economy is having right now is so-called supply bottlenecks. In other words, things have moved from very slow to very fast so quickly that there's shortages of, for example, famously shortages of uh, computer chips, which are slowing some uh, auto production as one example. There's shortages of labor in various areas, because people have been out of work or at home or are still candidly uh, receiving uh, uh, some income support. So they're waiting, planning on enjoying their summer before they get back to work. So we see that in the US, which is really, uh, along with China, at the forefront of the global recovery. We're seeing much better signs in Europe. Obviously, things are moving a bit slower because of the pace of the health situation there, the pace of recovery of that. But even there, the pickup is evident. The UK is well strong. Canada, despite us being in lockdown mode, and this is an interesting point, we're still largely locked down, but the economy has adapted so much and the way people spend and the way businesses are operating, that uh, this economy is growing quite strongly as well. And it will only pick up as we properly open up. So in the advanced economies, the picture is very strong. Now, I think the concern, the principal concern one has is that, as you said a moment ago, Tyler, the corona 
crisis isn't over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And in a number of emerging economies, and certainly in the developing world, there's much less progress on the disease, and there is less momentum as a consequence of that. And so we could have a, a growing bifurcation in terms of the strength globally. And that's one of the things I think policymakers at all levels have to be working on to, to close that gap. When you talk about policymakers, and if you look at those in, in charge of economic policy, are you encouraged by maybe some of your former peers? And I'm thinking both, Mark, in the private and in the public sector. When you think about people who have to be taking a macro view over the next 24 months, what they have to be doing on a regional level as much as a as a global level, do you think that there are the foot soldiers and enough uh, majors and generals in, in place? Or do you also, you know, when you pinball around the world and, of course, look at maybe bleak spots as much as those that are on the up, are we in a position where we're joined up enough? As, and I'm going back to that notion of, of economic policy. Tyler, I think we're joined up enough in terms of big picture macro policy. So in other words, monetary policy, I mean, everyone takes their own responsibilities, but the coordination and the general thrust of it is there. And at varying paces in different countries, central banks will be moving to start to withdraw stimulus. And they won't all do it at once because situations are different, but that's a good thing for the system as a whole. In terms of fiscal policy, clear stance taken that quote, the mistakes of post-global financial crisis wouldn't be made in terms of withdrawing fiscal stimulus too early. That general stance is in place in, in countries as to the extent to, they can afford to do that. And so again, there's a coordination there. Where we've not succeeded as well is on vaccines. There's not really a meaningful global vaccination effort. There are the start of that with COVAX and other efforts through the G20, but we'll see that really has to be ramped up. We also have to make progress or policymakers have to make progress in terms of debt in developing economies that they've had to take on during this period of time. Many of them are unsustainable, so they need to be restructured and also to provide meaningful, and I underscore meaningful, finance for the transition, the climate transition, the the elements that are really going to support sustained growth. An important step is being taken with the SDR allocation. I know it sounds like obscure plumbing, but it's really important as part of the IMF resources and increase in IMF resources, much of which can go to uh, the emerging and developing world. I suspect we're going to need to do more. And part of that is using the balance sheets of international institutions like the World Banks even more effectively going forward so that we can crowd in private investment in emerging and developing worlds so that we have a global economy that's not moving at two speeds, that's not diverging, but is starting to fire on all cylinders and move together. To summarize, in the simpler end of the spectrum, where should monetary policy be domestically? Where should fiscal policy be domestically? I think policymakers have done a very good job and collectively it's having a huge impact. But on the cross-border aspect, there's a lot more work to be done. And part of the legacy of this crisis is that we really need to do this work or else we're, we, we will end up five years down the road with uh, you know, quite stark discrepancies between different parts of the globe after a very long period where, by and large, we were converging. Let's look at the marshalling role that you face right now, and, and this is going to your your UN assignment, and of course, looking at your legacy. So, of course, you're talking about policy on one side and, and economic policy, and then, of course, what you're trying to wrangle from a sustainability point of view. 
Are there some basic, let's say, measures and, and messages? Is there a three or five point plan as to how you start to bring this together? Because you know, I guess on maybe you know one side of the planet, you have a coalition of the willing. And then, of course, you've got a lot of other people who are pursuing their own agenda. So it's a huge task, Mark. So how are you confronting it? It's a big task, but there's a lot of momentum. And it's one of the situations you see where because there's such a focus now on uh, sustainability across the private sector, including, the, so it's not just the public sector, that I think we have a real chance of making a breakthrough for Glasgow. And so just to be clear, what we're trying to do for the private sector finance to help bridge this gap, not just within a country, but across countries, is to get to a position where every financial decision takes climate change into account, just like they take interest rates into account or the credit worthiness of a, of a company into account. Climate change is one of the key determinants of value. So you need the right information and there's lots of worthy things we're doing to make sure that there's mandatory climate disclosure by companies and that that can be used and compared. You need to build some new markets like markets for offsets of carbon, uh, markets for the type of what's called blended finance that I was just talking about. So using public money like at the World Bank to leverage private money into, into countries. And what you also need is commitment. You need commitment from our largest financial institutions. And one of the things that has come together in recent weeks is something called GFANS. I want you to remember that, Tyler, please, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, brought it together for President Biden's summit last month or in April. And it's the bottom line. It's some of our largest financial institutions around the world. Commitments to net zero, not just in 2050, way stations in 2025 and 2030, specific strategies by sector for each of them that they'll be releasing. But the bottom line is it's $70 trillion of assets that these very large financial institutions control. So, you know, that doesn't just sound like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And that creates the prospect of the core of the system doing exactly what we're looking for, managing towards net zero. And we need to bring that through various vehicles to bear globally so that we're really making progress. And does that make every leader uh, in, in every capital pay attention? And I'm focusing on on one capital, which which would be Beijing, because we can talk about human rights, we can talk about all kinds of different things. And it seems that Beijing pursues its own policy. And yet at the same time, of course, we have also in China, I mean, a number of leaders, you know, in a sustainability space. But when it comes to joining things up, Mark, uh, yeah, do, do you have the attention of Xi Jinping uh, when it comes to these ambitions as well? Uh, I think we do. And uh, I mean, first, we won't get there without China. We won't get there without India, Brazil, others. We know everybody's got to participate. But let's focus, as you as you rightly do, on China. Um, the first is that the Chinese have been leaders, uh, not just in technologies and some of their companies, but also you know, they're the first major emerging economy to commit to net zero. Uh, President Xi did that last fall uh, with the 2060 objective. Uh, they have been leaders in my world, in the finance world, in some of the biggest innovations in climate finance have actually come from China. Um, and uh, of the authorities, uh, the People's Bank of China has always been a leader on that. And so we've been working closely with them. And central to their development, China's next phase of development, 
is developing their local financial markets. And the real push is to make sure that those markets are developing in a green or sustainable way so that there's specific products. Uh, you have you have the plumbing in place so that uh, in China, as in the rest of the world, climate change is taken into account in all these decisions. So they are central and, and they are making an impact. Um, that said, much more needs to be done. I mean, the one thing about climate I will say is that it is such a big issue. It is, we've left it very late. So while we have tremendous progress, we need to do even more. That was Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, in conversation with economist and fellow Canadian Mark Carney for the latest edition of The Chiefs. To hear the full interview, head to our website, monaco.com radio. And now, from one financial heavyweight to another, here on The Curator. William Green knows more than most about how to stack the odds in his favor. His career as a financial journalist has seen him write for publications including The New Yorker, Time, Fortune and Forbes. He has reported from all over the world and interviewed presidents, CEOs, billionaires and investors. On the latest episode of Middle Writers, he spoke to Georgina Godwin about his new book, Richer, Wiser Happier, which goes inside the lives of the world's most successful investors to find out what lessons they have to teach us on investing and beyond. Georgina began by asking William what traits most successful investors have in common. I would say one of, one of the most striking things about them is how profoundly rational they are. And so because they're these great pragmatists, they're, they're taking ideas from anywhere they can find them. Most of us, we have, we have our biases and prejudices, and, and then we try to, to find evidence to, to fulfill what we were, to prove what we already believe to be the case. But because they're so pragmatic, because there's so much skin in the game, they don't really care about dogma being intellectually consistent. They just want to win. They just want to be right. And so they'll, they'll draw on ideas from many different disciplines that can help them. So If, if they discover from studying mindfulness or Buddhism that it's helpful for them to meditate because then their mind will be clearer so they can see better, they'll do that. If they discover that there's something from mathematics that could help them or biology, they'll, they'll draw from it. So to, to give you an example, someone like Charlie Munger, who's this 97-year-old polymathic genius who's been Buffett's partner for the last 40 years, He became obsessed with this idea from Carl Gustav Jacobi, who was this famous 19th century mathematician. And Jacobi said famously, invert, always invert. And so Munger looks at this idea and says, oh, okay, so how do I apply this idea of inversion in life? So he says, well, for example, if I want to be a great investor, let me first invert that and figure out, well, what would a terrible investor be? How can I be a terrible investor? Or If I want to have a happy life, let me first figure out how to have a miserable life. And so it's a kind of beautiful example of the ways in which these, these extraordinarily pragmatic people are just taking ideas from everywhere, mental models from everywhere and saying, does it work? Is it helpful? And if it works, they'll use it. And so for me, they become a very interesting practical filter for how to live our lives. Mm -hmm. So they're They're thinking about things like how to manage their time, how to structure a calm environment in which to think better, what, what, what sort of people you want to hang out with, whether if you hang out with people who are worse than you, 
how's it going to affect you? So, well, let me hang out with people who are better than me or how to handle stress and adversity. And so they become these great free thinking pragmatists roaming through the world intellectually and figuring out, yeah, this thing works, this thing doesn't work. Let me grab this one. And, and so I, I think that pragmatism and rationality in a way is the thing that connects all of them. Mm. And of course, they've got to be brave enough to 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 not hang out with anyone at all, if if that's what it takes to 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 stray away from the crowd. Yeah, I think that's very distinctive. The fact that there's there's something non-tribal about them. There's a there's a very interesting Canadian investor, a guy called Francois Rochon, who I interviewed, who um who's also a great contemporary art collector. He he uses his investing career to bankroll his real passion, which is collecting contemporary art. And he said to me that when you look at most people, we tend to be very tribal. We, I, I guess this makes sense in evolutionary terms, that if, if you're particularly in times of danger, like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're being chased, if you're a gazelle or whatever, and you're being chased, you know, you find comfort in the herd, you find, you find protection in the pack. And what he said to me is, then there are a few people who actually lack that tribal gene. And he said, those people just think for themselves. They, they don't actually care about following the crowd. And he said, if you lack the tribal gene, you have a tremendous advantage as an investor because you don't feel like you just have to kind of pile into whatever overheated asset everybody else is piling into or, or when everybody else is panicking because the market is crashing, like during the global financial crisis, you don't feel that sense of panic that you must pile out at the same time as everyone else and curiously, he said to me that he thinks that, that writers and artists and some entrepreneurs actually also lack that tribal gene. And I, I, that rings true to me. And I think, again, that may be one reason why I'm fascinated by the great investors, because I, I think naturally I actually lack the tribal gene. I, I sort of I, I find that when everyone else is really bullish and cheerful and the world is going well, I start to kind of quietly panic and worry and then when everything starts to fall apart and everyone's miserable, I have this weird kind of joyfulness. And I'm like, oh, I told you so. I, I knew it was all <laughs> going to fall apart. And then I start to be kind of happy and calm. And so I think there's just something sort of profoundly quirky and weird about my wiring. And so when when I see these non-tribal investors, I I, I recognize them in some way as, as sort of kindred spirit, albeit with, uh, with, with a whole lot more, more yachts and planes than I have. That was the financial journalist William Green speaking to Monaco's Georgina Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. You're listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next, we head to Germany, where automotive giant Audi recently previewed the Skysphere, a concept car that showcases the high-tech future of autonomous vehicles. To find out more, Monaco's design editor Nolan Giles caught up with Audi brand's senior vice president Henrik Wenders. We all remember when we saw the first smartphone and uh, look how we are using it, how it changed the way we live, we communicate. And now with 5G, we are streaming our content, we are doing video conferencing, etc. So everything is taking place as if it would have been with us since a decade already, and it's not the case. And you see the velocity is further increasing. And at Audi, we just want to make sure that we are always prepared for the future. What we see here is an experienced device reflecting the technology 
technology, which is with us already, tailor-made to cater this beautiful future. We see that 5G is with us already, 6G is down the road, so the connectivity and the related intelligence coming with it is uh, experienceable already today. So based on this digital ecosystem, we are also going to witness and experience the autonomous driving. This is going to be experienceable within this decade. And what we are having on the road already is the electrification and all the advantages in terms of packaging and architecture of experienced devices, formerly known as cars, right? So that's with us already. So what we see embodied in form of the Audi Skysphere is an embodiment of all the technologies which are with us already. And as we are talking about the mobility industry and the related lead times, we better have an idea how the future at Audi is going to look like now, because also in the upcoming decades, we are shaping and creating mobility for human beings. So you are going to trust your life also in the future to us. Uh, and uh, that's what we are quite aware of. So all the pre-development phases are going to be with us. And that's the reason why we are sharing this concept now, because the upcoming decade is simply going to be beautiful and exciting. <laughs> Before we get into the discussion about the design of the vehicle you know you were talking about the velocity of the smartphone and how quickly things change obviously the automotive industry is a completely different beast right so what are the difficulties in terms of you know forecasting the future with designs like this in general i don't see it as a difficulty I don't see it as a difficulty. I just see it as a status quo we need to take into account, which was, by the way, always a status quo because we always had to pre-communicate the future. We always had to pre-explain ourselves due to our lead times. So that's the reason why concept cars have always been very important instruments to pre-communicate future experiences. In the past, those pre-experiences were mainly related to form and function. I would say now it's Audi's 111 years old. Over the last 111 years, it was pretty much about the hardware, beautiful hardware, enabling us as human beings to move in a very unique way from A to B. And the upcoming decade and the future is so exciting because we are adding an entirely additional experience level to it. This is why we're talking about an experience device, like with the Audi Skysphere, which is in offering two in one, two experiences in one. On the one hand, we're talking about a beautiful roadster, a driving machine able to cater a driver. But thanks to the autonomous driving, you can decide maybe that you want to be driven and to do other things while you are being driven. And due to the connectivity, it's easy to do so. As we are streaming our content wherever we are. We do this already, right? So it's no fiction, it's reality. Yeah. So you are doing video conferencing. We are doing this already. You are working from wherever. You become kind of independent of the location. Right, So mobility becomes an experience and you decide how and where you would like to experience it because you can go where your heart is telling you to go and the brain, the obligations you can do while being on your way to the heart location. So that's the amazing future I'm talking about. The Skysphere and the other concept cars are pre-communicating this future. 
So let's talk about the design now, because it's sitting in front of us. It is absolutely remarkable. I mean, you talk about the Skysphere as a device for experiences within, but at the same time, you know, it's still a car, right? It still looks and feels. It has the beautiful proportions. Tell us why it's so important, especially when we're talking about new technology, what you can do with electric vehicles. Why is it still important to keep this great form and a bit of tradition in the design? <laughs> yes. Uh, so let, let me catch the word proportions. Of course, technology is with us and you can apply it in different ways. As you can see, we are applying it in a way that we are appreciating and interpreting a beautiful past and making it tailor-made for the future. So why should we get rid of beautiful proportions? And when I talk about a beautiful proportion, when you're drawing a tree, I know how your tree is looking like. And you will not put it the other way around because I think it would not be a beautiful tree. So, and the same we did with the design team. So how are we leveraging technology in form of the electric powertrain, which is offering a gigantic interior space, or as we call it, a sphere in which you have your immersive experience due to the connectivity, leveraging it also in the autonomous driving, yet looking at it and saying, I want it. And that's, I think, something we should take into account. Yes, I want it. And so it's not a compromise and not an obligation because it's being produced in a sustainable way. You can drive it without CO2 emissions. You can have an immersive experience yourself without harming others, without harming the planet. And just finally, you know, we've got these beautiful pictures in the background of what I'm guessing is maybe the Californian coastline. <laughs> and this is a car you'd very much want to be cruising <laughs> along this coastline within. What's the link to California? Can you tell us a little bit about your design operation out there and how, you know, Germany and California are coming together? <laughs> so Audi is obviously a global player and the design team, Mark, the head of design of Audi and his team, they are global players. So there's a design team in China. There is a design team in California. And California is a beautiful hub when it comes to product design, also in the automotive industry, not only in consumer electronic industry, but also in the automotive. And this is why Audi is having its own design studio, which is led by uh, Gael Buzin, designed with his team the Audi Skysphere, a beautiful roadster. Not a surprise because once you are in Malibu, where the design hub is being located, it's obvious that you don't want to cruise with an SUV, you want to cruise with a roadster. So more than understandable that he came up with breathtaking, beautiful Audi Skysphere, the roadster where just the sky's the limit. So this is where we are going to celebrate the world premiere of the Audi Skysphere. So at its birthplace, designed in California in co-creation with the design team, had the headquarters here in Ingolstadt and definitely meant to be a message for the world. That was Henrik Vanders in conversation with Nolan Giles. To hear the interview in full, listen to this week's episode of Monaco on Design. The Donau Auen National Park between Vienna and the Slovak capital of Bratislava celebrates its 25th anniversary this summer. One of the finest remaining low wetlands in Europe, a large chunk of it actually sits within Vienna's borders, cementing its status as one of the greenest cities on the continent. And the park's history is closely tied with both countries' politics and commitment to looking after the environment. Monaco's Alexei Korolev in Vienna has this week's tall story. Not only is Vienna one of the greenest cities in Europe, with parks, hills, lakes and vineyards all to be found within its limits, 
it's also got a national park. It's the largest uh, floodplains forest in, in Central Europe, yeah. So all the others are gone by now. It's called Donau Auen, literally translated as the Danube Meadows. And it stretches for 40 kilometers from Vienna's eastern suburbs all the way to the Slovak border. Like many great forests in this country, this used to be an imperial hunting ground before it was nationalized in the years after the First World War. But it only received protected status 25 years ago, following protests and demonstrations that also contributed to the birth of the Austrian Green Party. So it was the private hunting ground? Before. It was the yeah. private hunting ground of the, of the Habsburgers for, for hundreds of years. And they protected it. And, and the National Park was formed because they wanted to build a hydropower plant down there at uh, Heinburg. And there was a popular uprising and all the students uh, fighting against the forest workers and, and, and the police. Ranger Heinrich Frötzscher has worked here for 16 years. He specializes in the European pond turtle, a species indigenous to this area. For these turtles, unlike the humans who look after them, floods are a lifeline. So you're here at the right time. We had a flood water. There is still water inside here. They love to sit on the, on the trees that are floating in the water. Ah, there is one. <laughs> oh, yes, I see it also. Yeah, but very interesting that we see them, see one here. Hmm. But because now in, in summertime, normally they don't get out of the water so often because the water is warm enough. Hmm. So they don't need the, the warmth of the sun. This forest is because all these water channels are in here. All the, the kinds of trees that are growing here are different to, to a normal forest without all this water. Hmm. Like the popular tree is a specialist for this uh, flooded forest type. Hmm. Yeah, and it looks wild and I like this. A lot of people are complaining about that there is so many dead wood around in the forest and it looks so dirty and, and somebody has to clean up the forest. <laughs> <laughs> But that's just because the people don't know anymore how a natural forest should look like. When you are in a tropical rainforest, for example, everywhere there are trees lying around. If you go just for 300 meters to, through the forest, you have to climb, I don't know, about 10 trees you have to climb over. And here too, so there, there is still not enough that wood, it mm. could be much more. Mm. And it's a very important habitat for a lot of animals. Like we hear the woodpecker now, mm. he's living on this dead wood too, because all the small and larger peoples like the stag beetle and uh, butterflies and whatever, there are a lot of animals that, that are, a lot of insects that, that are living in the, in the, in the dead wood. Mm. An estimated two million people visit the park every year, more than Vienna's entire population. And while every visitor is welcome, they also bring trouble. Especially since, since uh, the corona pandemic, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, because all the shopping malls were closed and the people didn't know what to do else. So they came into the forest and, and had a lot of ideas, stupid ideas like uh, camping somewhere in the wild, in the forest. This is not a very good idea. It's, it's, it's a wet forest, but mm. still it can burn quite quite well. <laughs> so making fire is completely forbidden. Even camping is quite a lot and, and, and hard to, to manage all these people. Also that the forest can take this, this many people without, without being harmed. Mm. And all the animals that live here, 
do, do you keep track of them? Yes, yes, but I don't know all the animals yeah. that are living here. There are a lot of, lot of species. Um, yeah, we keep track of them, like the deer, we know how many deer there are, and like the, the, the more important species, I call it like this, like the black stalk, like the white-tailed eagle. So we keep track of these animals, also some prominent insects like the stag beetle. Oh! Ooh! This is a female stag beetle. She doesn't have the horns like the male. And the female has, has these really sharp mandibles. Uh -huh. So I don't want to touch it in the front. She can yeah. bite quite oh, hard. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oops. Uh oh, no, come on. Just to be clear, nobody got hurt there. But let me sign off with this. You should always tread carefully in nature. And yes, some beetles can bite. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. Monaco's Alexei Korolyov there for this week's Tall Stories. Still to come here on The Curator, Monaco's staff look back on their favorite Olympic moment from their home nation. We head to the Caribbean for a delicious dessert recipe and the musicians Laura Marling and Mike Lindsay discuss their new album, Animal. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. They say you host the Monocle Daily for two stints in your career, once on your way up and once on your way down. It's good to be back. The Monocle Daily is our early evening show, live from London and Zurich every weekday at 1800, that's 1900 CET. Join me and our expert panels as we review the day's events in Europe, follow developing stories in the Americas, and welcome early risers in Asia and Australasia. The Monocle Daily also features reports and analysis from Monocle staff and correspondents around the world, and a host of fresh features taking a wider, deeper, or lighter look at the news. Join us for the Monocle Daily every weekday at 1800 London time, 1300 on the east coast of the United States, right here on Monocle 24. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. With the Tokyo Olympics well underway, we've asked some of Monaco's international staff to reflect on their favorite Olympic moments from their home nation. For our first installment, Monaco's Chiara Rimela wanted to take us back to the hot summer of 2004 and mused on the joy of watching her home nation of Italy compete in the smaller events. If I asked you to name a few of your favourite Olympians, who would come to mind? Probably Usain Bolt, Simone Biles, Tom Daly, Michael Phelps. Runners, gymnasts, divers, swimmers, the athletes who specialise in the big, bold, sexy disciplines. Unless you're a dedicated Olympic all-round fan, or your nation is historically good at a sport that most people would consider pretty niche, chances are that you will tune in primarily when the primetime headline events are on. But for every hundred people that just watched a 100 meter sprint final, there is one person like me who will sit through the entire thing back to back. 
or rather like the me of 2004, a bored teenager stuck at home with a pesky illness during a sticky hot Italian summer, positioned in front of the TV for the best part of the day. With the games being hosted in a time zone pretty close to where I was sitting in Turin, I could easily make sure I didn't miss a minute of the Olympics coverage, and I didn't. Ladies and gentlemen, please be outstanding for the national anthem of Italy. It turns out 2004 was a great year to be following Team Italy's efforts on our national broadcaster Rai. My home country ended up in a respectable 8th place in the table with 32 medals won, 10 of which gold. Most Italians will remember Athens 2004 as the year when an Italian conquered the top of the podium for the men's marathon, winning it in the most symbolic of terrains, the birthplace of the marathon itself. Va a Stefano Baldini! Bravo! Bravo! Some others will remember the efforts of Valentina Vezzali and Aldo Montano, our superstar fencers. But the face of that edition of the Olympics for me is that of archer Marco Galeazzo. On the 17th of August, Marco Galeazzo was standing in the heat at the Marble Panathinaikos Stadium, ready to fire his last arrow, and I was watching. Wearing a beige bucket hat, some thick-rimmed black glasses, and a hint of a goatee, he may not have looked like the most glamorous of contenders, but that has made his friendly face even more indelible in my memory. The Padua-born athlete was 21 at the time and at his first Olympics, facing Hiroshi Yamamoto, the decorated 42-year-old Japanese archer who was competing his last games. When the final arrow landed for nine points, the commentators, until then polite and genteel, as you would expect for as poised a discipline as archery, exploded into a celebration fit for a football World Cup final. The Robin Hood of Padua, they screamed, he has rewritten the history of Italian archery. That day, Galeazzo won the first ever archery gold for Italy. He went on to win another for the team event at London 2012, but I didn't see him win that. Truth be told, I never really followed archery again. But for that day, in 2004, I was a huge fan of the sport. Those who are into watching these smaller events at the Olympics will understand what I mean. That intense glimpse into a passion nurtured and trained away from the spotlight, at least most of the time, can give viewers an outsized sense of meaning and purpose. So bring on the shot put, the hammer throwing and the discus. We will always make time for them. For Monocle 24, I'm Chiara Rimella. Monocle's Chiara Rimella there. Next, we turn to Canada, and here's one of the nations and Monocle's finest, Daniel Bage. A match in two between Justin Gatlin, the 2004 champion, The 100-meter final at any Summer Olympics is always the marquee event. It's that primetime moment where the whole world seems to hold its breath watching on, where the packed Olympic Stadium falls silent waiting for the crack of the starter's gun. And then when the runners take off, it's the most electrifying 10 seconds of the Games, when four years of hard work and suffering for the athletes and the chance for a gold medal comes down to inches. The race is there and gone like a strike of lightning. 
When the men's final is contested in Tokyo this summer, Canadians will be hoping Andre de Grasse is towing the line. A man with a smile that seems to be as wide as Canada, who stands again as one of the best hopes to medal. He took three medals in the last Summer Olympics in Rio, silver in the 100 meters, bronze in the 4x100-meter relay, and bronze in the 100-meter final behind Usain Bolt and American Justin Gatlin. Not the very greatest. While it was Bolt who dominated the sprinting events in 2008 in Beijing, 2012 in London, and 2016 in Rio, a generation before it was another Canadian who owned the track. On a hot July evening in 1996 in small town Ontario, I was playing road hockey with some friends, all of us dreaming of hoisting the Stanley Cup, as you do no matter the season in Canada. I remember my friend's grandparents calling us into their living room with a beautiful view over Lake Ontario, telling us we had to see what was coming up on the television. What an atmosphere in this stadium. They're expecting something extraordinary. I think they'll get it. The men were in the starting blocks on a muggy evening in Atlanta. And it was a nervous affair. The defending gold medal champion from Barcelona, the British sprinter Linford Christie, double faulted on the line and was disqualified from the race. Christie at first refused to accept the results, adding to the drama. Away this time, Bolton, not so fast. No, again. Was it Linford? If it was, he's out. He's out of the Olympic final. If it was Christie, he's pleading with the officials here. There's Fredericks. Who can compose themselves? Up stepped the Jamaican-born Donovan Bailey, who himself had false started in the semi-final with the chance to write himself into Canadian legend. The television call of 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal, still brings tears to my eyes 25 years later. For Canada, it was redemption. Eight years earlier in Seoul, a Canadian man also won the gold medal on world record time, but Ben Johnson would be stripped of his medal in disgrace after testing positive for anabolic steroids. Now that gold medal was ours, plus a new Olympic and world record. I read somewhere that during the race, Bailey clocked what at the time was the fastest speed ever recorded by a human being on foot. For me as a 10-year-old kid, seeing a Canadian on the top step of the podium with a gold medal around his neck singing the national anthem, it meant that we as Canadians were capable of anything. A small country, sure, but a player on the world stage. The best part, perhaps? A week later, Canada owned primetime television again when Bailey added another gold in the 4x100 relay alongside teammates Bruni Surin, Glenroy Gilbert, and Robert Esme. What Bailey went through to take the gold is incredible. Just weeks before the race, he had torn an abductor muscle, and it was also the same day a bomb went off in Atlanta, killing two people and injuring 100 more, overshadowing his celebration. Bailey dedicated the 100-meter gold to his uncle, who had been dying of pancreatic cancer. His uncle Keith had actually died before the race, but his family held off on telling him before the event. For me, Donovan Bailey always represented what it is to be Canadian, using his platform to talk about hard work, community, and family. He was also never afraid to speak his mind or to call out racism. 
At the Tokyo Games this summer, my prediction is that more than one Canadian will make a name for themselves on the global stage in athletics. We have a stacked track and field team once again, full of women and men who are already superheroes to me, putting in years of hard work and sacrifice for one shot at glory. And I can't wait to tune in. For Monocle 24, I'm Daniel Bache. Go Canada, go. Thanks, Daniel. And finally, we look at the last Olympic Games. It is, of course, in my home country, Brazil. It's Rio 2016. Here, I reflect on the opening ceremony and the significance of having the Games for the first time in South America. I'm going to tell you a secret. From a young age, I've had a recurring fantasy in my mind of what a perfect Olympic opening ceremony in Brazil would look like. This was very much pre-Rio 2016. All I can remember is that it involved a gigantic disco ball slowly opening up with a samba beat in the background with lots of tropical birds inside flying for freedom when the disco ball opened, all followed by a medley of Brazilian divas singing away. When Rio de Janeiro was selected as the host city, I was so incredibly proud, especially following the 2014 World Cup, which was also hosted by Brazil. For the purposes of this series, I will forget about the white elephants and political scandals. Only this time, I promise. I have a strong belief in the soft power of those big events. I think they can at times lift the mood of a city or even of an entire country. I genuinely think it's the best global platform you could ever think to sell your country to the world. And the opening ceremony is perhaps one of the toughest things to pull off. Our budget for the opening ceremony was certainly not as high as that of Beijing 2008 or London 2012, but it felt nimble and very Brazilian. Highlights include the simple but majestic walk of Brazil's most famous top model, Giselle Bündchen, striding along to the sound of the girl from Ipanema. Mm. It gives me goosebumps every time I watch that. Speaking of goosebumps, I have never seen such a more precious rendition of Brazil's national anthem than Paulinho da Viola's version. A delicate, cool rendition. At that moment, I felt a tear or two dropping from my eyes. I was watching the ceremony with my mom and boyfriend while sipping delicious caipirinhas. It meant a lot. No disco balls or tropical birds, but it all seemed absolutely spectacular to me. The whole Olympics went well in the end. And while we also had plenty of bad press, I think most people were taken by Rio's charm. It would be hard for other cities to beat that incredible backdrop with sea, mountain and city all together. The Cidade Maravilhosa, wonderful city as we Brazilians like to call it, has numerous problems. But for those few weeks, we could forget about them and feel proud. 
I cannot wait to see the highlights from Tokyo. I'm sure they would do an excellent job. And being Brazilian, we do have a strong connection with Japan. So it's an honor that the city is the chosen one post-Rio. In terms of sports, I love volleyball, and Brazil tends to do very well at it. I can't wait to watch some surfing as well, and some eye candy on disc throwing too. Vibe Brazil, and enjoy the Olympics. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. You are with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. For this week's edition of Food Neighborhoods, the food writer Vanessa Bolosier shares a recipe for a delicious Caribbean Creole dessert. Hi, my name is Vanessa Bolosier and I'm the author of Sunshine Kitchen. And today I'm going to tell you how to do a coconut flan. That is the Sunday treat that my mom would make for us. My brother, my sister and I would actually get to eat two flans if we were good. It's sweet and delicious. So the first thing you do when you make coconut flan is you have to preheat your oven, 180 degrees Celsius. And in a bowl, you put one can of condensed milk and one can of evaporated milk. You have to use four eggs. With the different milks, you mix in the egg yolks, basically using a whisk. Then you can add the cinnamon, the nutmeg and the lime zest. And gradually, you'd whisk in some coconut milk. So again, a can of coconut milk. You can then add desiccated coconut. And in another bowl, you beat the egg whites until stiff picks form. Gently fold the coconut mixture, so the milk mixture that you've done, into the egg whites. Then you go and you use a frying pan, you hit the sugar, so you need approximately about 60 gram of golden granulated sugar, lime juice and a bit of water, I'd say about 100 ml. You do that on medium heat until you get a deep brown caramel. Then you take your ramekin, that recipe is for about six to eight ramekins, and you'd pour that caramel at the bottom of the ramekin. Not too much, just so that like the bottom of the ramekin is covered. You put the ramekins in a deep oven-proof dish and pour in enough boiling water to reach halfway up the ramekins. Then you pour the coconut flan mixture into the ramekin and bake in a bain-marie for 35 minutes until it's just set. Then you take it out of the oven, leave it to cool at room temperature. Then you put it in the refrigerator for at least two hours before serving. Vanessa Bolosier, there, author of the new cookbook, Sunshine Kitchen, for this week's edition of Food Neighborhoods. And finally, on today's show, our final highlight comes from the latest installment of Monaco on Culture. For this week's show, Robert Bound spoke to the musical duo called Lamb, which is made up of the critically acclaimed singer-songwriter Laura Marling and Mike Lindsay from the folk band Tung. They talked about the making of their new album Animal and the character of Lamb that they channel their music through. Using your words, all that you want. Is to be heard. So Laura comes on the 
802 from Paddington. I know that's probably the wrong station for Margate. King's Cross. King's Cross, yeah. yeah. There's something kind of nice about that. Is that, is that that sort of the ritual, the sort of sacrament of going to work, in inverted commas, which Definitely. is what songwriters don't... Well, you obviously you do, but it's it's funny. You're going the opposite way from all the commuters, perhaps, and all the rest of it. Not that there were many of those this last year, I suppose. Yeah. But is that important to the process of creating it having that ritual of turning up for work sort of thing yeah absolutely um and i do that you know i do that every day anywhere i get up and, and work do you work, go work do you go to do you work sort of work at home do you go to a studio do you go to a writing room or something? i have a studio downstairs in my yeah. in my house but getting on the train to margate which is a beautiful train and also when you don't have to go at commuting time that's yeah. a, i think that's one of life's great privileges and margate is a very different mindset to me you know, it's a very different place. I mean, you live there, you probably don't notice it anymore. Oh, I still notice it. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's gone native. <laughs> yeah, I have gone native, absolutely. I've gone full pirate. Yeah. Um, you know. Arr, what's the pirate's favourite letter? Oh, I don't know. You tell me what it be the C. Ah, ah. you meant to go R. Anyway. Um, and how does it when, So Laura turns up with her, with her psychoanalysis derived sort of slightly nonsense poetry all these and reading between the lines between the lines and trying not to read her herself comes up with this book of lyrics how does that change your music mike how does that sort of does that that presumably pushes things on yeah that's another creative step we're talking about these two things clashing together and making this this record how's that yeah it's always quite amazing when um uh, lyrics and melody suddenly sort of pair with 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 the wonk, and uh, that's be- such a thrill, right? When you it hear is, it, it is, yeah. Speakers, and it's yeah. um, I find it really, it's really like a drug, you know. And and so it's suddenly you're in this zone, and and time kind of stands still, and it sometimes takes some time to get to that to get to that point. Sometimes Laura disappears to the kitchen for about an hour when I think it's never going to happen, and then you come up with with the genius and. Uh, <laughs> And then it's just suddenly it's it's like it was always meant to be, you know, and that's 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 the sort of greater than the sum of its parts moment, I think. Yeah. And that's when you know it feels like a I don't know if you can say a great song. We've made a great song. But you know, it's um We can say that. You've made a really, really <laughs> wonderful second record. We yeah. that's, that's what we're here for. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Woo! Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Um you do feel it at the time and it is immediate and it's um it's a it's a very special thing when there's something that never existed before suddenly exists and it didn't exist before you got off that train to Margate and um and now it does you know mm. and um and now we're talking about it what about talking about it it's a bit sounds a bit sort of navel gazing but does that make it more or less real or do you go what have I made here when you have to explain it because it's sometimes it's quite an ephemeral thing and you're doing it through this the prism of lump you're not you're not you know Laura Marley and Mike Lindsay you're, you're lump mm. is it like water trickling through your hands or is it more solid thing when you talk about it, I wonder? It's a good, really good question because I think we have struggled to figure out a way, a sort of common language with which to discuss it because yeah. Lump seemed, the name Lump, which was my goddaughter who's like eight or something when she, she, she screamed from? Lump at me when I asked her what, <laughs> <laughs> what she'd call her band. Um, and it sort of had that and that sort of childlike name as well, whatever. We, and we, we sort of felt like that was an appropriate thing for the to describe what we were doing, which is this, which is something very rare for me to experience collaboration in that way. I'm mm. extremely private in all senses. And I think because the collaboration was such a sort of, like is such a satisfying process, it's almost like we're in a bit of a daze about what we feel about it. 
And so it's quite difficult to then come and try and sort of, I don't know, you're essentially I mean, trying to sell it. this is the first time we've talked about it, <laughs> yeah, I think. exactly. We've we never had a conversation. Well, you sort of come in and say, so what's the new record about, guys? You've got four minutes, go. Dream. Yeah, well, we, it's, it is interesting because we don't really talk about it whilst making it. In fact, we, you know, we don't, you know, we don't, we just sort of get on with it, really, don't we? Yeah. You know, that's our method, really, a sort of um, cup of coffee, bit, bit of chit-chat, how's the train, and then... Um, you know, okay. yeah. She unfurls. She got the bowler hat, the umbrella under the arm, yeah. the Financial <laughs> Times in the briefcase. Put all that down, and then just get on with being a bloody musician. That's right. Exactly. Okay. That's right. Get on with the job. So uh, it is, yeah, it's, it is. It is interesting, sort of retrospectively, sort of trying to think back, and 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 also now it's it's its own. You know, when you, a record is released, do you ever feel like this when suddenly it's not yours anymore, and it's like mm. um, now it's out. Actually, it's not released yet, so. Um, so I agree with you there, as if I've ever made a record. Sorry, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, no, made a big podcast. time. <laughs> well, yeah, whenever Sorry. you make, whenever you make something. So when your podcast goes out, that's yeah. it. It's like you know, it's, it's for everybody else then, you know. And and um, and you you at that point maybe I I do anyway. You get to listen to it uh, maybe as as somebody else, somebody yeah. that didn't make it. So then you can just talk a load of nonsense about it because I didn't make it, you know. So it's, yeah, it's fine. Musicians Mike Lindsay and Laura Marling there in conversation with Monaco's Robert Bound. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by the lovely San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs>